Peace be with you. Fear is everywhere. Uh, fear is everywhere. And it almost seems as if the culture in which we live, it's almost like we're coming up with new ways to fear all the time, new reasons uh, to be afraid. And I want to uh, take you through a few of those. Candace McLean in uh, uh, the report News Magazine said this, Ordinary children today are more fearful than psychiatric patients were in the 1950s. Um, when did she write that? This year? Last year? Five years ago? She wrote that 21 years ago. Can you imagine what would happen today? Uh, in our hyper-connected world, there's this new thing. This is maybe a, a bit less serious at first, you think, but actually it isn't uh, something that's, that's to be taken lightly. Uh, FOMO, you know, the, the phenomenon of fear of missing out, right? It's an acronym. Uh, this is connected to a new phobia called uh, nomophobia uh, that psychology today uh, defines as this, the fear of being without a mobile device uh, or beyond mobile phone contact. A recent study, 66% of adults, 66% feel extreme anxiety if they lose connection to their smartphone. Uh, if you're between 18 and 24, uh, that extreme anxiety goes up to 77%. A growing number of college and university students are now taking shower, uh, their phones with them into these showers uh, for fear of not being connected and of missing something. And there's things like, we're afraid of the economy. What's going to go on with that? What's going to happen with interest rates? How does that affect that? How does that affect our mortgage or the cost of groceries and gas and everything else? Uh, we're worried about illness. We're afraid about another pandemic. We're afraid about something we might hear about possible food shortages. We're afraid about Ukraine and the stuff like that that's going on. Uh, there's a lot of stuff that we can be afraid about on a personal level, there's also fears that we kind of get embedded deep within our psyche. Uh, this has to do with kind of the, the, the radical individualism uh, of our times, especially as we kind of start to go away from kind of having a more biblical worldview. Mark Sayers says uh, the problem that the contemporary self finds itself caught in, quote, we want the freedom and autonomy of radical individualism while being dependent on the opinions and emotional climate of the crowd. We want the freedom and autonomy of radical individualism while being dependent on the opinions and emotional climate of the crowd. And then there's what we see on the screen there. There's a bunch of things. We, maybe we're afraid of death. Uh, maybe we're afraid of being alone. And that could take different shapes in different people's lives. Maybe it's afraid of criticism, and we already touched on that a little bit. Um, maybe it's afraid of suffering itself. We don't like suffering. We don't like to see the people we care about suffering. Maybe we're afraid of the real and prevalent presence of evil in the world. Maybe we're afraid for our families. Uh, maybe we're afraid just in a general sense of the future, right? Maybe we're afraid of hell. Maybe we're afraid of despair. There's a lot of things uh, we could be afraid of. Recently, uh, I came across this acronym for fear, and I'd never heard this before. Uh, F-E-A-R, standing for False Evidence Appearing Real. And I don't know who originally said that. I think it's interesting to kind of ponder a little bit, so I can't give the person credit. False evidence appearing real. The idea is that there are times when ideas or, or lies or information or data that we get, and all of a sudden it just kind of seeps into us, and it may not be true, but it starts to govern our thinking, and it feeds those fears that we have deep within us. False evidence appearing real. And the reason I start the message today like this is because the text that we're going to look at in John 11, I think, pushes back against some of these fears that can become so deeply embedded uh, within us. It's the story of the raising of Lazarus from John chapter 11. And in this, we discover that Jesus is actually a very powerful antidote to these messages of fear in our lives. 
And so we're going to explore, okay, what are some of these untruths? How, how does this text with this woman and this conversation that Martha has with Jesus, how does that uh, link up with this? And what is the pushback? Why and how? So with that, we're going to open the scriptures to John chapter 11. And if you've got your Bible and you want to open it, that is great. There's some in the pews. We're also, uh, we'll have the words up here on the screen. I'm reading from the ESV. And recall that this is told to us by one of the apostles who was there. This is John the Apostle. See, we walk with Jesus, talk with Jesus, and these stories have been preserved for us. So not only was he there, not only was he an eyewitness, if he was unsure about something, he could ask Jesus for clarity. And John 14 says that the Holy Spirit is going to help the apostles remember everything that Jesus had taught to them. So we've got this wonderful preservation of these stories. And here we're, we're about halfway through. And just before I get into the text specifically, two kind of points of context so as we go through, the, the, the Gospel of John is recorded for us very intentionally, very carefully, and it's laid out in a way to communicate big themes to us. And as we've been talking through, there's seven signs, miraculous signs, through the Gospel of John, and this is one of them. And a sign is like a divine road sign. So a, a normal road sign that we see tells us, okay, what's the population of Guelph, or how do we get to, you know, the no frills? Um, but a miraculous road sign is something that points us to and teaches us about some greater reality. And each one of the signs narratives tells us about one of those. And if this is the raising of Lazarus from physical death, then it's teaching us something about Jesus being the ultimate giver of life. Okay? But also in the text, there's one of the I am sayings. So just as there are seven miraculous signs in the Gospel of John, excluding Jesus' resurrection itself, there's also seven I am statements. And these are, this is not a kind of a usual way of talking. It's a particular Greek construction, ego, a me. And uh, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the gate for the sheep. He, these, these phrases keep coming up. Another one of those is embedded in here. And part of the significance of that, of course, is that Jesus is taking upon himself the name of the God of Israel. He's, he's not only doing things that the God of Israel does, he's saying things that the God of Israel says. And so he's, he's identifying himself as God come to us in human form. So there's a lot going on here. And this is the, the, the story of the death of Lazarus and the resurrection of Lazarus. And this is part one of two. So we're going to look at the actual resurrection of him next week. But this week is kind of the first 27 verses that sets it up. And we should also note, this isn't the only person that Jesus brings back to life. Uh, he also uh, brings back uh, the girl in Matthew 19 and uh, the widow's son in Luke 7. So this is something that he does. calls his disciples to do it as well, of course. So it isn't just a one-off. Chapter 11, verse 1. Now a certain uh, man was ill, uh, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. Now Lazarus isn't a name you hear very often, uh, but in the first century in Judea, it was the number four name. So it was actually quite popular. Uh, the number four name last year in Canada was Lucas. So it's, it's, kind of, it's not that common to us, but it was common back then. Of Bethany, that's a town right outside of Jerusalem. Uh, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. And just because I'm a nerd about these things, I looked up uh, Mary. Mary was the number one name in uh, Jesus' time, which makes sense because there's all these Marys. Like, which Mary is which? Like, we don't know because half people are named Mary. Anyway, that's why. And her sister Martha, it was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. Okay, so now we've, we're putting the pieces together. There's Martha, Mary, Lazarus. They're all, they're all siblings, and he's ill. 
So whenever a story starts out that someone's ill, we should hear like these tones of danger because this is the ancient world, and so there's not modern medicine, there's not modern hospitals, and so illness was, was a very serious thing, even more so than it is today. Verse 3, so the sisters sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. So Jesus cares about him. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Well, wow, so that's a powerful statement. So this is, this is you know, something that's going to glorify God through this, through this illness. Now, if that sounds familiar to you and you've been tracking along with us, that kind of sounds similar to what Jesus said back in chapter 9. There was a man, remember the man born blind? So he didn't become blind when he was 30. He's born blind. He's never seen anything. And the disciples ask of this man born blind, say, hey, is this guy, you know, is this guy sin to deserve this? Or did his parents sin to deserve this? Like, is this some sort of, you know, cosmic karma going on here? He says, no, neither this man sinned nor his parents. This, this happened that the glory of God might be revealed in him, right? So some great work of God might be revealed in him. So the similar thing is happening here, right? A glory through grief, a hope through hardship. And one of the things we talked about on that Sunday that we will also see in this story is that uh, what has happened to you uh, is not as great as what God can do through you, right? What God can do through you is greater than what has happened through you. So this kind of sets us up for what is about to follow, Verse 5, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Now that, that doesn't seem really illogical. It seems counterintuitive. If, if, if the person's ill and Jesus is this person and does this stuff, you'd think he'd run to, the, run to the bedside and help. But he delays. He stops. Okay. Verse 7, then after he said this to his disciples... Then after this, sorry, after the delay of time, he said to his disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and you're going to go there again? So recall that the Jews, this isn't a reference to all Jews. We can't use this as an example uh, uh, to justify anti-Semitism. Jesus is Jewish. The first disciples are Jewish. Uh, used this way, this specifically refers to those um, religious leaders who are opposing Jesus. So it's a certain group of people. And the disciples are like, wait, they've already, they've already attempted to stone you twice from blasphemy. He's been saying things that only the God of Israel says. He's been doing things that only the God of Israel does. And he's been putting himself on this equal plane with God. That's how they've interpreted it. And they're picking up stones to stone him. And so like, they see danger ahead if Jesus goes out to where these people who have done this already just so happen to be. Verse 9, Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble, because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles, because the light is not in him. Now, he's saying these things in real time, and no wonder the disciples are sometimes scratching their heads. They're like, what are you talking about? I think the sense here is that you walk in the day, meaning you walk in faith. There's nothing to be afraid of. You walk in the night, which means you walk in doubt. You're not open to the greatness of God. Therefore, fear will rise in you. I think these are the kinds of things Jesus is communicating to them. Verse 11, after saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he's, if he's fallen asleep, he will recover. Right? Now, Jesus had spoken of his death. So, falling asleep is often a euphemism for death. Uh, but they thought that he meant taking rest and sleep, right? They think he's having a nap. No. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I am glad 
but I was not there, so that you may believe. Okay, so the fact that he has died, the fact that Jesus wasn't there, is actually going to be a circumstance that will give rise to belief in people. But let us go to him. All right. Um, some of the delay, you know, the, the delay, I can't help but think, I'm just speculating here. These people have different thoughts about, you know, what, what is possible in the world. Maybe he's just letting that time go so that all their hope in human interventions disappear. And they're readying their hearts to, to open them in their minds to the powerful things that God is going to be able to do. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. And so here, you know, he's thinking, we don't really know what's in his mind here, but maybe he's thinking, yeah, this is dangerous, but this Jesus, he is who he says he is. We're going to go even if it's dangerous. So kind of get a sense that this is, this is a sign of his own faithfulness and, and courageous loyalty uh, following his, his master. Uh, as I was getting ready for this, I came across a great quote by uh, Pierre Teilhard de Chardin. He writes this, and I think it applies here. He says, in the shadow of death, may we not look back to the past, but seek in utter darkness the dawn of God. So poetic. In the shadow of death, may we not look back to the past, but seek in utter darkness the dawn of God. And that's what you kind of get a sense is going on here with, with Thomas's thinking. Verse 17, now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Okay, we're going to pause on this for a second. In the tomb four days. So, uh, first of all, four days, what's, why, why four days? Um, it's hard to know for sure, but in the first century, there was this belief among uh, some Jewish groups, that after someone died, uh, like the, the soul would come out of the body and would kind of hover around the body for a period of three days looking for an opportunity to gain entrance back into the body. And so if that was a popular and prevalent belief, might it be the case that Jesus has waited four days to make sure everyone knows, no, 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 no. None of that funny business is going on. That, that, that doesn't happen. What's going on is this person is really dead, and he'll wait long enough so that people know this isn't something like that. This isn't sort of resuscitation. This guy's really dead. And so you're going to see an actual resuscitation. All right, so from that, I want to do a flip into a bit of a historical mode here for a second, just because I think this is good to, to bring to mind and to our attention. Um, this is the tomb of Lazarus, uh, courtesy of the CSB Holy Land Illustrated Bible. So that orange-reddish sign that you see says Lazarus Tomb, so this is Bethany. You can go check this out today, and you'll see kind of lower, there's kind of a, an entrance, a low door where you can go in. And the neat thing about this historically, and there's been a ton of archaeological digs and research in the Holy Land, of course, and as early as the second century, uh, there was local, common, you know, united in thought um, um, placement of where the tomb of Lazarus was. And so sometimes there's a discrepancy. It was here or here or here. No, no, everyone is unified. This is where it was in the second century. In the fourth century, a church was built over top of it to preserve it. So sometimes a church would be built over a holy site so that it wouldn't get wrecked or damaged. So this goes way, way back. And so that testifies to the fact that people have really been preserving this site uh, as a historical location for a long, long time. Okay, verse 18. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. This woman's in grief. Um, like grief throttles you from the inside out. 
Grief throttles you from the inside out. And so what's this woman experiencing? This brother whom she loved has died. She's, maybe she feels a bit betrayed by the fact that this powerful Jesus has not been there. It's a very real, it's a very human, it's a very a pastoral moment. Um, uh, in his book For Words, Chris Vise tells a story about a uh, Scottish colonel in, in the war. And, he's, and it's, and it's going to be a day where he's got this own, his own troops and he's going to lead them in the battle. He receives himself a message that day that his own son has died at another location on the battlefield. And he's just taken aback by this, and he goes back alone into his own tent. And he takes some time there, and he eventually comes out, and he rallies his own troops, and he leads them into battle. And uh, someone later who had seen all that transpire, I said, what, you know, hard day, difficult day, I can't believe it. Like, what were you thinking while you were in that tent? And he said, I really kind of felt like I had three options. And the one was to just, just kind of drown my sorrows, is to drink them away. Another option was, was that I could just despair and just give up. Like, forget it. It's not worth it. Um, another one was that I could, I could turn to God and his strength march forward. And so that's what I chose to do. And there's these moments, even in the midst of our great grief, when we see kind of the options that are laid out before us, what are the other options? And so as I look at this transpiring, in, in Martha, she's in grief. She's been throttled from the inside out. She is struggling. She's sad, obviously. Maybe she feels a sense of betrayal from Jesus. But ultimately, she decides on faithfulness. Why? Because she, she looks at him and says, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. So she's even acting in the faith, even in the midst of of her incredible grief. Verse 23, Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And so she thinks Jesus is talking about this event uh, on, the, on the day of the Lord, right? Where there's this great general resurrection of the dead. Jesus in uh, Luke 17, 17 calls it the resurrection of the righteous. So some, this thing kind of, kind of the end of recorded human history, the, the thing is going to happen. And, and he's like, no, I'm not talking about that. What does he say? Verse 25. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Um, this so this is that, that uh, other I am statement, right? So I am, ego me, I am the resurrection and the life. So Jesus is saying that he is that. Now, again, part of the reason that that is alarming to people is not only does he take upon the name of God, I am, upon himself, but he's identifying himself as the giver of life. He is actually the one who gives life. What does Hebrews say? That Jesus sustains the whole universe by the power of his word, right? So we're being here reminded of the creative power and life giver of Jesus. He's saying, no, 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 death is not the closing of a door. Death is not the closing of a door. With faith in me, death is not that. It is the opening of one, yet shall he live. She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, right? Because he asked her, do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. And so she responds in this wonderful faithfulness. And so uh, Judd Wilhite, who's at a, he's a, a Las Vegas pastor, he's described heaven like this. Heaven will be everything good in life, multiplied times God, Minus all the pain, sorrow, fear, injustice, and loss. I think that's great. 
Heaven will be everything good in life multiplied times God minus all the pain, sorrow, fear, injustice, and loss. And he's building on what we learn on Revelation 21 and elsewhere. And so that's a beautiful thing. So Jesus is giving her hope not only in an eternal sense, but also in an immediate sense with her brother whom she loved. And what we're supposed to take from this too is that if we have that same level of belief, that hope kind of works backwards into our lives, removing some of the things that we are afraid of because we have this ultimate uh, hope. Okay, so we're going to end our close look at the text there. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right. I want to put a picture up on the screen here to help us ponder through this. Now, this is uh, from a devotional book. Maybe some of you read it. It's called The Pilgrim's Progress, uh, written in the 1600s by John Bunyan. Last I checked, it was the second greatest devotional work uh, in the English language of all time, second only to the Bible. And so in this picture... Uh, you'll see the person um, on the right, that is a Christian. So he's a pilgrim. He's living this, leaving the city of destruction. It's an allegory. Leaving the city of his destruction, and he, he's following this narrow path, interacting with these different characters, and he's going to the celestial city, to Mount Zion, right? At this point in the story, it's fairly early in the, in the book, he is going to a place to rest for the night called the Palace Beautiful, it says it's, a, it's, it's built by the Lord of the hill for the relief and security of pilgrims. And so he's going there to rest. But you'll notice also there's two lions. There's a lion on his left and a lion on his right. And the porter of the house is inviting him forward. But when he's from a distance, he's already encountered people who've been run back. They're terrified. They don't want to go forward. They're running back to the city of destruction because they're too afraid to go forward because they've seen these lions. But the closer you get, you realize that there's something specific about the lions. They're chained. They're chained to the wall. And the length of the chain is just such that it, they can come within inches of you, but as long as you stay on the narrow path, they can snap, they can threaten, they can salivate, they can intimidate, but they cannot harm you. Okay? So that's the image I want to leave you with. It's, uh, the image is by H.C. Sellis uh, uh, and M. Paolo Priolo. I don't know if those are real names or not. Anyway, that was what was in the book. But the idea here is if we think back to that idea of fear being an acronym, false evidence appearing real. The false evidence here in the story is that, well, these lions can actually hurt you. They actually can intimidate you. They can salivate. They can chomp. They can kill you. But in actuality, they can't because if we know that's true about the chains, if we trust the chains are strong enough, we're going to be able to go forward. We might, our heart might pump a little bit, but we're gonna, we know we're going to be able to go forward and we're going to be okay, okay? And so those lions represent the fears in our lives. All the different fears. How, how, how many fears like this do we have? And, and they're there and they're threatening and they're snapping their teeth and they're intimidating us. But really, we just don't trust that the chains are there. We don't trust that the narrow path is going to lead us to where we need to go. And so we turn around. False evidence appearing real. But Jesus is our response. And I'd like to highlight how he is that response in a couple of different ways. So we're going to put up that list of things that we were afraid of a bit earlier. Let's just walk through them. Specifically, how does Jesus on the narrow way push us back from the fears that surround us based on what we read in the text? Are we afraid of death? Well, we don't need to be. Why? Because Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Those who come to him, they have, they have no fear of ultimate death, of spiritual death, because of Jesus. He gives us that peace with God. And how many of us live through our lives with some sort of fear or death? We're afraid of doing things. We, we, we don't want our time to expire maybe before we should. God knows the amount of our days, not us. Maybe we're afraid of being alone. 
But we don't need to be. Why? First of all, Jesus has promised to be with us. He says, I will be with you as my people always. Not only that, but he has given us a community of believers which journey with us through life if we take it seriously so that we can contribute to them, encourage them, build them up. And the same is true for them to us as well. Maybe you're afraid of criticism, but we don't need to be. Why? Because quite often when we are afraid of criticism, we've come to that point. What's happened is we've given too much credibility to the words of other people. And we start to base who we are, our identity, our purpose, our value based on what they say and not what Jesus says about us. And so the more confident you are in who you are, your identity in Christ, then all of a sudden those other fears about criticisms and everything else and how you appear in the eyes of others starts to go down a little bit. Maybe it's afraid of suffering. And that's a big one. I don't like suffering. I know you don't like suffering. We don't want suffering for other people. But we know that in Christ, because he is the resurrection and the life, it's never the end of the story for believers. There is always good on the horizon. More is always coming. There is always a horizon of hope for God's people. So even though we go through difficulties in this short life, that is never the end of the story. Why? Because God says it. Maybe we're afraid of evil and we see all the stuff happening around us and it intimidates us and it scares us and we, we think this is how it's going to be forever, but no. Why? Because we serve a God of perfect justice. There's people going around in the world who think that they're going to get away with stuff and evil's going to win. No. Every evil deed will be brought into judgment under a perfect, holy God. We live in that world of justice where ultimately evil will be punished Maybe we're afraid, we're afraid for our families, but we don't need to be. In his word, God has given us all the guidance and light and wisdom we need. And God is also working on the lives of his children in ways beyond what we can see. Maybe we're afraid of the future, and we're not sure what it's going to hold. And I think the last couple of years has really given us all a bit of an unsent, kind of unsettled feeling about the, the future. We're not totally sure what's going to go on, but you know what? Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is on the throne. We don't know what's going to happen, but, but he does, and we belong to him. And that's the most important thing. We don't need to know what, what's going on. All we need to know is God is on the throne, and we are going to seek to be faithful to him. Maybe you're afraid somehow of hell. And maybe you become sucked into the thinking like so many people do, that you need to morally earn heaven and if I just am good enough, and if I do all these good works, if I hit a moral batting average of 300 Sorry to use a baseball reference. I know we're all mourning. <laughs> Shocking. Shocked, anyway. Um, probably should have prayed for that. Prayers to the people. Um, but we can get sucked into this thinking that, you know, we have to be morally good to do this, right? But then we realize, wait a second, what does Jesus teach us? He actually teaches us that, you know, he pays the consequence for our disobedience. So we, we actually do deserve hell. We deserve it with our law-breaking, our sinning, our wayward ways, our faithlessness, all these things. And so Jesus, we don't get what we deserve, we get what he deserves. He takes what we deserve on the cross, and he gives us what he deserves, which is eternal peace and blessing with our Heavenly Father. It's this wonderful, wonderful gift. That's what we get for free, for peace and forgiveness in him. Maybe we're afraid of despair. And there's a whole bunch of reasons to despair. But Jesus reminds us time and time again that if he is the resurrection and the life, Hope is the end game for his people. And in this life, by the way, all of us have a purpose. 
We are to get in on the ways God is renovating the world with his grace and truth as he brings heaven to earth as we glorify God and love the people around us. That is a life of hope. So my question to you is this. What is your greatest fear? I just want you to think about it. What is your greatest fear? As I think through that and as you think through that, maybe some of you can think of it like that. You've got it. Maybe it's always been the same. Maybe it's shifted over the past little while. Maybe you're going to have to think through, okay, well, I've got 10 greatest fears. Which one is the greatest? Maybe uh, you have to take some time to think about it over the coming week, and that could be it. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to think about it, then identify it, and take the next step against it by identifying one promise of God which helps you address that fear. See, if, if fear is, to use that acronym, is false evidence appearing real, then the idea is we need to identify one of the promises of God, 2 Corinthians 1.20, all the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ, right? So we need to think, what are the promises of God that actually beats back that fear in our lives? Because if we don't know what it is, we're going to let that fear eat us. But if we do know what it is, if we know the promises of God, what is actually true in this world of deception, we'll be okay. Untruths love to convince us that the lions aren't chained. Fear loves to, uh, untruths love to convince us that the lions aren't chained. Final thought. In April 1943, uh, bomb raid sirens went off in London, England. 43, so midst of World War II, going off, and all of a sudden that was, and, and people started to go into a panic. You know, buses stopped, people went off buses into the streets, people came out of stores and shops in their homes looking up. Some people started to yell out, they're dropping them. People are looking around and no one can see anything, but these air raid sirens are going off. And, and people don't know what to do, and so people try to hide for cover. They figure out, okay, I, I don't know, but I better get out of here. And, and one of the things people do is they start jamming themselves into the subway stations, but they do this quickly, and it becomes a stampede. And people tumble upon one another. They think, okay, people at the back of the line think, okay, the people at the starting line, it's full, and they're pushing us back, they're keeping us out, and so that just makes it worse, and people push and push and push. In the course of 15 minutes, 173 men, women, and children died, even though there was no bomb. Fear loves deception and momentum. But we need to know this. It's the fear can't rule you if God already has the job. Fear can't rule you if God already has the job, okay? Now, here's what I mean by that. The Bible teaches us to fear God. Now, we think, okay, we're not supposed to fear, so what do you mean by that? Well, it's not shaking in your boots fear. When the Bible talks about fear, here's what it means, and this is the great definition and understanding. That I think is really good by the late, great Billy Graham. He said, fear in God is having reverential awe for God. Reverential awe for God is to revere God, is to be so awed by Him and who He is that that trumps an awareness of His goodness, His majesty, His glory. That trumps the other fears we have in our lives. Fear can't rule you if God already has the job. Let the sirens blare and let the lions roar. So what is your greatest fear? Think about it. I encourage you to think about it. Then think of one promise of God that we are given in the scripture that we know is true, that responds to and pushes back that fear that we have in our life. Because if we don't know it's true, we will let untruth and that deception and momentum gain currency in our hearts. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And then he asked them, do you believe this? 
I do. And I hope you do too. Amen.